Welcome to Kol Isha, the podcast that gives Orthodox women a voice. Welcome back to Kol Isha. This week, I am joined by Noah Levy of Stamford Hill, London. Noah has some really fascinating experiences that are very unique, especially being a from woman. And I invited her on to talk about them because I think her life and what she does are super interesting and a little different. So I hope everyone will gain from her experiences. So Noah is a mom of three and a wife. She lives in Stamford Hill, London. She studied at Cambridge University and she works primarily as a mortgage broker. But what makes her experiences so interesting is that she's also a world traveler who has traveled to 30 countries so far, although she's been grounded for the last little while due to COVID. So welcome, Noah. I'm so excited that you're here to talk about your experiences. Hi, I'm so excited that you invited me on. I'm really honored. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. So Noah, I'm curious to hear about you and your background and sort of what was it that made you decide that you wanted to start traveling the world? Was it something that you always wanted to do? Was it just a part of your life from when you were young? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how this all sort of started. Hi. Well, as you said, I live in London with my husband and three boys. And normally, unlike what my Instagram page portrays, I'm generally working and being a mum. I'm a mortgage broker here. Um, but as often as I can, I like to get away and travel and see different countries. I don't know if you realize that so at the moment in the UK, we've been kind of locked down due to COVID. Last year, they let us travel pretty much wherever we wanted. But since November, they made it illegal to travel. That's only just been lifted now. So my last trip was in November, just before the lockdown to Tanzania in Africa and Zanzibar which was really amazing. But since then, I've been sitting and waiting and planning. So I'm excited to be sitting here talking about travel because I can't go anywhere at the moment. I'm just waiting a few more weeks to see if they'll let us go. So how it started is I don't think there was really um, a time where I just suddenly decided to travel. I think as I grew up with my family, we always traveled every summer. We went to France or Spain or places in Europe. Nowhere like very exotic, but I think we basically always traveled abroad nearly every year. And I got married quite young at 19. And we went on a honeymoon to Cancun in Mexico. And I loved that. And in those days, kind of 20 years ago, um, Cancun wasn't the Jewish thriving place it is now. It was it seemed quite exotic. And we really had fun. And since then, I've just decided to try whenever I can to go traveling. So in, when my children have school holidays, I take them skiing or traveling to see things. And otherwise, I try to go with friends. And every year with my mother for the last 12 years, we'd make one big major trip somewhere long haul around the world, which luckily last year we did make it to Tanzania. And I hope this year COVID's not going to stop us again. So you've been traveling since you were young. So I'm curious to hear, you know, what makes you choose a certain location like Tanzania and Zanzibar are like such remote places of the world, at least for me or for you living in developed countries. And these are sort of really off the beaten path. Um, and you've been to so many others too, which I want to get into. But when you decide that you're going to plan a vacation with your mom, or like you said, with your boys, what makes you choose a certain location? Is it just like 
you want to go off the beaten path or are there certain places that you have on your bucket list? I think I have a very, very long bucket list with lots of places on. So when I come to planning a trip, every time I'll look at the kind of top destinations I have and see if it works out logistically in terms of flights, um, in terms of cost and hotels, and then whichever one works out because I've got so many places to go, I just pick my favorite one and then leave the rest for the next time. Um, we normally like to choose more exotic places because I find that you can meet different people from such disparate cultures that you don't get. So for instance, traveling in Europe, it's interesting to go to France and meet French people, but the culture shock when you kind of go to India or Africa, people are just so different and it's interesting to meet them and see how they live and see as well what we have in common. I think that's my main passion in travel. Interesting. So I was going to ask you that. Do you sort of I, I mean, I guess from what you're saying, your vacations are not just like checking out different beaches. It's actually blending with the culture and meeting different people from different cultures. Is that right? Yes, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I love beaches. And <laughs> I know who does it. <laughs> that's going to be top of my list. Um, but I think definitely we, we always try and meet the local people and kind of immerse ourselves in the culture and have the different local experiences because I think you just learn so much. I mean, I come, I live here in London in a very insular um, Haredi community. I think it's the biggest Haredi community in Europe. And so it's quite fascinating to take yourself outside your comfort zone. Um, I find that very much when traveling with my children, it's very fascinating for them to see. They live in a community where just keeping kosher is just the done thing. Every shop is kosher they don't feel in a way so Jewish here as they do when you take them out and go to Africa or somewhere and just nothing is kosher and everything is different. And they've really learned a lot from those kind of experiences. It's really cool that you're giving your kids those experiences because I think a lot of people tend to feel more comfortable keeping their kids insular when they're trying to raise them with a from lifestyle. A lot of people choose to stay within you know, from communities and maybe shelter their kids a little bit rather than keeping, rather than exposing them to this kind of thing when they're young. So I, I find it interesting that you made that decision to want to do that. Can you talk a little bit about that or does it just come naturally to you? So I find also making your children uncomfortable can be a very positive thing for chinuch and education. Um, I remember when I took my children to South Africa to Kruger National Park and we'd had an amazing safari holiday and we went back to Johannesburg airport and you know, like a good mother, I tried to pack some fruit along with all the nash for them to eat. It was five hour drive back to the airport. And we realized when we got to the airport, a couple of bananas were all squished. There was no way anyone was gonna eat them on the 12 hour flight back to London. So my son thought he was gonna just go and throw them away because what are we gonna do with these squashed bananas? And um, to us, that seemed like a very reasonable thing to do. And a man cleaning the airport saw him do it. And obviously, kind of, I imagine the average wage is a couple of dollars a day for someone in that job in South Africa. And he was so horrified and told my son, what are you doing? That's food. You know, people don't have any food. How could you throw that in the bin? And I think although we can teach our children on an intellectual level, well, we're very lucky and we have so much. It was so powerful for my children to hear that from someone that had nothing. So I think they really learned from that experience and things like that you can't teach just by telling your children and giving them droshes they, to see and feel how lucky they are when they go and play to places like Africa. That was just really a very, very powerful experience. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds 
it sounds like uh, they're gaining so much because especially the locations that you choose, you're not just going to five-star resorts in developed countries. You're going, like you said, to India and Zanzibar and places where the disparity from the way people live to the way you live and, you know, your kids is so different. You know, it's amazing that they get to see that up close and personal. And like you said, I'm sure it really builds their appreciation for what they have. Like those are real life lessons that they're going to take with them, you know, that you, you can't give them any other way. So it's really cool that you're doing that. So tell me um, how many countries you visited to this point. I think it's more than 30 now um, oh. because living in the UK, I tend to do quite a lot of repeat trips. Um, so in, in Europe, like my long haul trips, maybe I'd, I've, I've been to South Africa a few times, but otherwise um, I try to go to different places every time. But in Europe, I think it's quite easy to go back to France or different Greek islands. So I just love discovering new places every time. It sounds amazing. So in terms of being like a from woman traveling, especially with a family, with your kids, that must take a lot of preparation and a lot of arranging like logistics and things like that. You know, like you mentioned, you like to try to blend into the local cultures of the places that you go to. But I think a lot of non-Jewish or non-kosher observant people, when they do that, would say that partaking of the food of the local culture is like a huge part of blending with the local culture. Obviously, you're not able to do that. So what makes traveling off the beaten path sort of as a from woman, how is that different? Or what are some of the challenges that you face doing this? Yeah, so I think um, Kashrus is the biggest challenge and the biggest um, logistical challenge. And I spend a lot of time before kind of packing my food. Most of my bags are, tend to be made up of food because you can't normally get food where I go. Occasionally there have been Chabad houses, but not always because if a Chabad house is one place in a country, it doesn't mean that I'm gonna be going specifically there. Um, that is very, very tricky. And the people I think generally that you meet are quite good, but it's very hard to explain to people kind of the want to welcome you in an African village and give you their food, why you don't want to eat it because they have no idea what a Jewish person is or like you could maybe explain that to someone in the UK that has an understanding of um, kind of Judaism and you can't explain it there. And so it, I tend to try and pretend just eat it <laughs> so they won't be offended because sometimes that could be a very offensive thing that I would just not eat the things they're offering me. Um, the hotels generally are quite welcoming. I normally ask for a whole cut, whole fruit and vegetables. And I have a brilliant item, which is like a peeler and knife all in one. And I take that and cut up my own fruits and vegetables. I get a few odd looks, but generally they're quite welcoming. I had one hotel in Kenya that they went and sourced me some kosher wine from Nairobi and brought that into this lodge in the middle of nowhere. Wow, who would have thought there's kosher wine in Nairobi? <laughs> Quite a lot of Israelis in Nairobi. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. <laughs> and they'd gone and checked on Google all the, the laws. There was some confusion because obviously they'd mixed up, I think, Twaveling with Kashrus and they kept asking me, should we go to the river and, and put your bowls in it? And I was like, no, <laughs> I think my worst Kashrus incident happened in Tanzania last year, where on safari, you have to be very, very careful to keep all your food very tightly closed and away from the animals and I had all my food packed in very thick um there were freezer bags like they weren't plastic bags and they were hidden on top of a wardrobe in my tent and we came back one day 
and we found the tent a little bit open and wrappers scattered everywhere. And there'd been a devastating robbery of all my food from the baboons. The baboons, oh my gosh. And we caught one of them was still in the tent in the middle of this <laughs> stealing. They'd managed to rip open all the bags and open all the chocolates and cakes and crisps and all my food. Wow. And left me a couple of hot noodles and it was the start of my trip. So I was laughing and partly crying <laughs> because I was so upset to be on a diet then for the next week. <laughs> Wow. And then for the rest of the next couple of days, we we saw monkeys sitting in amongst all the, the jungle, just eating chocolate out of these wrappers. <laughs> That's hilarious. They shared your chocolate with all the other monkeys. <laughs> That's why I normally eat on trips too much chocolate. So that trip I was from then on on fruit and vegetables the rest of the time. <laughs> wow. So then basically you were, you know, just a vegan diet for the rest of the trips. So I guess technically you know, if people want to go anywhere, they can live off the of fruits and vegetables while keeping kosher, but bringing along, uh, you know, cheese, milk, any sort of meat items would have to take a lot of logistical planning. Do yes, you like deep freeze everything? Cold. I take, if I take, I take one bag of frozen food and in the hold, even if I'm traveling often for 24 hours in the aircraft's hold, it stays very cold. So I found that quite successful. Normally I, it gets basically frozen still to the destination. So for a few days I have that. Um, also then when I was in Tanzania, there was no electricity in the tents. It was a, an off-grid camp. So that's another problem because normally I take like a sandwich toaster or something to heat up food or a kettle. So that really was a diet <laughs> for a week. <laughs> Wow. But it sounds like you really enjoyed your experience regardless of that. What, tell me a little bit about Tanzania. You said you went on a safari there. Yes. Tanzania is a really fascinating country. It has, we went, we've did a fly-in safari, um, which is kind of, I feel the most exciting kind of safari. You take a very small kind of 10 seater plane and you fly out to a very remote camp and all these camps have one airstrip. And as you land in this plane, there's a ranger there to clear the runway. We had to circle back once because there was giraffes on the runway and we couldn't land. Oh, wow. And then you live in this unfenced camp, um, which is really quite exciting because a couple of days before we got there, the lions had been inside the dining room. So you never know who's going to be around the corner. You have to walk with your eyes open. <laughs> wow. And you sleep in this un unfenced tent, uh, camp? So you sign many disclaimers when you get there that you understand the risks and, wow. you're, and during the day you are allowed to walk around um, the camp or just the actual camp. You obviously can't go outside it, but where humans are, you're allowed to walk around by yourselves. But as soon as it becomes dark, you have an Askari who is a Maasai guard who spends the whole night sitting there guarding the camp and you have to always call him to leave your tent because you can't see what's hiding in the bushes. So when we were like sitting in the evening around the campfire, there's always got um, these special Maasai gods watching out for the wildlife. Wow, were you terrified doing this or is this something that you just really love? <laughs> we've done it before and we've really loved it. There's nothing like lying in your tent at night, listening to lions roar and hippos move about. You're quite safe inside the tent. Um, and they assure us that if you stay inside your tent, you're not, you have, there's no risk basically. You have an alarm to call. Um, which probably should bring me to my most embarrassing moment ever traveling, which was a couple of years ago in Kenya. My mother and I were in another unfenced camp in the middle of the Maasai Mara. And we spent all night kind of with one eye open because we could hear lions and hyenas. 
And one evening as we got into bed, we saw a hand-sized spider on one of our beds. Oh my God. So scared, because to be honest, we're not as scared of lions as we are of spiders. (laughs) (laughs) And so we we tried to signal for our guard with our torch through the door. And obviously there's no kind of phones or electricity or anything there. And they didn't come and we were really scared. If we didn't want to lose it, we wouldn't know where it was. So we decided let's just push the emergency button, which will probably call the guard because it's always an emergency button in case there's any um, problems. We pushed it and it made a massive alarm. We didn't realize it was going to do that. And these three Maasai warriors came running to our tent, armed with their spears and clubs to see where the lion was hiding. Oh in my gosh. I guess the emergency alarm is designed more for lions than spiders. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> and so then they looked all around, like quite confused until we pointed out. And then they were even more confused and just looking between us in absolute astonishment because these are kind of, people that grow up living outside and fighting off lions and how could we possibly these two spoiled western women be scared of a spider and they looked at like like their clubs and their spears like how shall they get rid of this and in the end they wrapped it in one of their special shawls that they wear and they told us you called three warriors for one spider but you know it doesn't sound that crazy because from your description it sounds like it could have easily been like a venomous one or something like massive things in the middle of the jungle like I mean not the jungle in the middle of the safari <laughs> so to be honest we thought it probably wasn't venomous <laughs> but that was our excuse <laughs> wow the truth is how are you to know I don't blame you I really think I probably would have done the same thing in the circumstances that's what all our friends say but I think by breakfast the the guards had taken a video of the situation and circulated it so all the staff were laughing behind their hands (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) like gonna check that destination off your list and move on to somewhere else (laughs) (laughs) wow so it sounds like your mom has a really adventurous spirit too that she's going to these places with you that's so awesome I don't know I'm thinking about it myself I'm wondering if I would if I would be able to do that, like, it sounds extremely exciting and like an incredible adventure. And like, what could be more awesome than seeing these incredible safari animals up close. But at the same time, I don't know, I would be terrified of, like you said, sleep with one eye open. I don't think I'd be able to sleep. It, it, you have, you have a real sense of bravery about you this like adventurous spirit of, you know, being able to do these things. It's crazy. I think we are quite adventurous. Um, although in South Africa, my mother did put her foot down about swimming with a great white shark, so we couldn't do that. Um, but I think also on safari, when you speak to the guides and things, you just get such a feeling of reassurance. They know the areas so well. They know the animal's behavior. I think that's the most common question I get on Instagram, apart from, oh my God, what are you eating? Is can't the lions eat you when you're in the safari jeeps that are open and you could literally reach out and touch the lion? Um, but you see when you're there, the animals don't perceive the jeep, don't perceive you inside the jeep. They just see the jeep as one jeep and they walk past next to it and ignore you. And you have to obviously follow the safety briefings. If you shout or stand up or put your arm out, it would be a bit disastrous. But as long as you follow the rules, um, it's just an incredible experience. We've even done walking safaris a few times. Um, which is even more scary because you're just walking with a guard. (laughs) You go with the guide in front of you and you walk in single file. Um, And it's it's quite interesting. You learn that lions are actually not really the animals to be scared of because lions kind of perceive you as an apex predator, as a threat. So 
if you watch their behavior towards humans, they're generally not trying to stalk you and kill you. You have to be more careful of the buffalo or the elephants, you know, stampeding you. <laughs> wow. Is it typical to find a stampede of elephants or do they just wander around like, you know, sort of individually? I don't think you, you would normally be in that situation because the guys obviously take it very seriously and they know they can read the behavior straight away. So they make you back off and they're careful to walk where the wind, you know, is going in the other direction so the animals can't smell you. <laughs> wow. I, I'm just thinking about this. I mean, I would, I think I would love to do a safari, but I think it's that like open camp without the fence and the, the Maasai warriors. <laughs> That's really blowing my mind. I, I don't know if I'd be able to do that. So it sounds like a lot of your adventures have been in Africa, right? From what you're telling me? Recently, I think what happened was we we'd hadn't, we only did safari, maybe we started a few years ago. And we actually came um, to safari through a trip to Sri Lanka, which is not obviously a normal safari destination. But we when we were there, we visited... Um, a national park which is known for its herds of Indian elephants and we happened to be there on a day where there were just thousands and thousands of elephants gathering at this lake and we thought it was such an incredible experience we we asked ourselves why have we never done safari before <laughs> and that was um that was really the catalyst for starting to look at Africa so we don't mind we like also to go to Asia and to see other cultures I think India was our first um, place about 10 years ago that was really the major culture shock. Um, interestingly, my husband's family is, is Indian Jewish, Baghdadi Jews from Bombay. My in-laws grew up in Bombay. So I was quite fascinated to go back and see where they'd come from. I knew a few words of the language from them. Do they still and, live there, your in-laws? No, so they moved when they were children to England. Oh, okay. I don't think there's any Jews really still there now. Interesting. Um, there was quite a big Baghdadi community in India. And that was really the, just the assault on the centers in India of the color and the smell and the noise. It's just really such a shock to the system and it's fascinating and it's quite brutal. I've never seen poverty like it even in Africa. It's really heartbreaking to see kind of children living in the middle of the road and the only thing they have on is shorts and that's the only thing they own. And we bought them some supplies for schools, like pens and papers. And I remember at the time, my children were quite young, but they were like, why are you taking them pens? That's rubbish. <laughs> Who's going to want a pen? Because obviously we just have whatever pens we want. And when we took them, they, there was fist fights breaking out amongst the children just to get one pen so they could write something. And the poverty there really is something, something to behold. It's really terrible and heartbreaking. They don't, I mean, quite a lot of them don't have access to sanitation or running water. But on the other hand, you see such a vibrant cult country that's growing so fast and has such beautiful history and beautiful palaces. Obviously the Taj Mahal. And we stayed in a Maharaja's palace that's been converted to a hotel. And just such a rich um, history and culture and speaking to the people there, you learn so much from them. Just the, their zest for life, even though they live for the majority in such difficult poverty and when we were there it was kind of like sometimes 50 degrees one day it was a massive heat wave and you see we could manage because we went to a hotel with air conditioning but a lot of them were just kind of lying around in their shops and the schools were all shut and you just, it really makes you realize how lucky you are and kind of what a different life we have sure and it makes me think now because they're struggling so much from covid you know it's 
part of that that poverty and the way that they live so densely populated and like you said lack of sanitation that has allowed like covid and infectious diseases to to flourish there so much and it's it's heartbreaking to think that you know we in in developed countries we have healthcare we have like you said air conditioning pens things we take like so much for granted like so not a big deal to us it's incredible did you take your kids with you then did they did they see that the way that people live there no they didn't go to india but it is it is interesting because it's so difficult to know how to work through the whole covid situation i know in tanzania we went there they didn't really believe in it i think the president has since died of it so oh, wow. <laughs> but when we went all the people there said no it doesn't exist and just you know in england when we haven't worked most people even if they've had a hard time there's been government support in tanzania there's no government support there's no tourists in the safari camp we went to that had 12 kind of rooms or tents we were the only guests for two nights and in countries like that if someone works there they often support 10 or 12 members of their own family and some of them were so happy to see us they were crying tears of happiness because and telling us tell your friends to come back there's no other source of income they live kind of day to day on on their small wages and it's just really ravaged I think an entire tourist industry not just locally in Europe but when you go to Africa you just see it's very hard to see how they're going to recover from that because they can't just take a year or two off with no one coming and no income. That was it's, really sad. Yeah, it's amazing to, to hear, like, first of all, obviously where you're going and what you're seeing there is amazing, but it also gives you such an appreciation, you know, and me, like the way you're telling me about this, like, for the way that we live and what we have that we take for granted. Like, I'm sure there are so many countries that really rely on, on tourists and there are a lot of countries that don't have their own infrastructure for manufacturing or just the ability to travel somewhere else has been so limited. And we really, you know, take for granted the fact that in these developed countries that we live in, our governments can help us out and, you know, just community structure, we can help each other out. Some people can still work remotely by computer, you know, and they can help support other people who can't work. It's fascinating and heartbreaking to think that there are so many people in this world who have been so awfully affected and there's like nothing they could do about it. You know, what, what do you do in that kind of situation? It's horrible. Yeah, it does. It was really, really shocking and really saddening to see it, to see it up close. And obviously in the kind of safari camps we went to, they were quite luxury camps. So they had people supporting them. But the other people I don't think were so lucky. Wow. Amazing. So I'm curious about when you went back to Bombay, did your in-laws remember anything about having lived there or were they too little to really remember? Oh, so I didn't go to Bombay. I'm saving Mumbai to hopefully take my husband and in-laws one day. Oh, okay. And to um, Northern India, which was Delhi and Jaipur and, and Agra. But I thought my parents-in-law left fairly young, like before they were teenagers. But for instance, his grandmother, who is um, nearly 101, she oh, wow. still remembers it. She left only in her 40s. And so she still speaks. Um, the Jewish Indian is kind of a mix-up of Hindi and Gujarati and things so I know a few words from her so before I went <laughs> she taught me the a few of the words of the local language they remember it very well there's like a beautiful shul there in Bombay and just but when Israel um, came about most of them emigrated to Israel or Canada or America or the UK so unfortunately I don't think there's much of a community there now 
That's so fascinating. I didn't realize that there was ever a thriving Jewish community in India. Like we, the the Chabad of Mumbai, uh, I think a lot of people know about and heard about. Unfortunately, they had that awful attack several years ago. But I, you know, like when just because there's a Chabad there doesn't mean there's a big community. You know, very often there's not. So it's just so interesting to to hear that there was that there when when you go to these kind of places do you generally seek out jewish culture or do you just tend to look more for the local culture um so obviously a lot of places there's no jewish culture and then but if there is then we always um go and see i think my most interesting place i went there the most unlikely place was um in mauritius which is an island off africa what is it called in mauritius mauritius it's just kind of off south africa and when I before I went, my friend told me, oh, Mauritius, I, I know where that is. And I was surprised because most people where I live don't haven't heard of the more exotic destinations. And her great aunt was buried there. So I was quite surprised. <laughs> and she asked me to go because her aunt's son was still alive and he wanted me to go and see the cemetery where she was buried. And what had happened was during, I think, maybe 1947 or 1946, during no, I have to change that again. Sorry, no, during the war, um, when Israel was under the British mandate, a group of refugees, a boat came, tried to dock, and the British wouldn't let them dock. And they took them to Mauritius, which was then under British control, and kept them there kind of as prisoners of war because they were escaping Germany. So at that point, I think the British saw them as possibly um, em en enemies because they were obviously, although they were Jewish, they were German. And they stayed on this tropical island. But unfortunately, a lot of them died from typhoid and other tropical diseases. And so my friend's great aunt passed away there, leaving a two-year-old son who grew up. And I think he only died quite recently. And South Africa keeps this beautiful um, cemetery there. They keep it all really nice. I think there's maybe 50 people buried there. So just in amongst all these cane, um, these cane sugar fields in the middle of Mauritius, this tropical island, you can go and see a Jewish cemetery, which is really, really interesting. Wow, that is, it's, an, it's fascinating to see where Jewish culture pops up, you know, from what you're describing isn't so long ago, but before, you know, even bef times before that, centuries ago, it's incredible to think where the hotspots of Judaism were versus where they are today, you know, like even places like Spain in the 1400s, like there's not any really Jewish remnants there today, maybe, you know, a handful, but not like then, but there's probably so much Jewish culture that you can see, um, you know, in the various places that you go, I'm sure Europe, right, even though there's a lot of places that there are Jewish communities now, but there are probably so many uh, Jewish areas that were thriving that are no longer that you can see as well yes i think obviously in i mean in europe most of the places have been decimated if you look at eastern europe what i think was most fascinating was in greece because although obviously europe was the worst hit kind of the poland and hungary those kind of areas you do still see people from all those areas that still have communities today in london and other places but the greek communities from especially from salonica were i think almost all killed and we visited the Jewish Museum in Athens and that it was just so heartbreaking to see a culture where I mean I, I don't think I know anybody of Jewish Greek descent now but they had their own sudurium they had their own kind of dress and attire and just an entire 
community of a couple of hundred thousand people were wiped out. And interestingly, the Greeks, I think, were the only church in Europe that actually proactively tried to help. And you could see all these falsified documents that the Greek church had made and pretending that the Jewish people were Greek and giving them Greek names and trying to help. But by the time the Germans invaded, it didn't help and they were just all deported. Wow, that's so fascinating. Actually, I just read very recently that the CEO of Pfizer right now, Pfizer, who now everyone knows the name of because of the COVID vaccine, is a Jew of Greek descent. His um, his parents were survivors of the Holocaust and they were refugees. I don't want to say the full story because the details escape me right now, but it's very fascinating. They were one of very few survivors of the Holocaust from Greece. And it's just so fascinating to, to read the story. I before sharing it, I actually went online and looked it up because I it's, it just sounded so wild to me. I wanted to make sure that the details were really true before I shared it with anyone else. But I, it was like a mind blowing story. He was very young at the time and he became um, a veterinarian, I believe. And then he you know, worked his way through the ranks. He actually became the CEO of Pfizer fairly recently. And they credit him with having helped Israel so much with the COVID vaccine and all that because he's a Jewish man. Even though he, his name doesn't sound Jewish. I don't remember the name, but you can look it up. I can share it in the, in the um, comments after I post the episode. But I thought it was so fascinating because like you really don't hear much about Greek Jews. It's uh, incredible to think that that whole, that whole culture was, was wiped out. It's, it's horrifying, but the fact that you get to go and connect with it and, and see all that, it's making me want to do the same thing. <laughs> it's like, cause I, I love history, but I never really had the opportunity to travel the way you do. And it's, it's amazing. What were some of your favorite places or experiences um, to go to and, and to see? Um, I think, well, I do love safari, I have to say. We're quite hooked on that now. But one of the most incredible trips was one we did um, two years ago to Indonesia. We, um, we like to do a couple of places. I'm always packing everything into kind of a week or eight days because I don't want to leave my children for too long. So we flew via Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. So we got a stopover just to go and see the Twin Towers there, the Petronas Towers. And then we went to Bali for a few days. And then we flew to the Komodo Islands, which are... Um, like some southern islands quite much closer to Australia than they are to London and ever since I've been a young girl I've been desperate to see the Komodo dragons these absolutely enormous lizards in the wild and they only live indigenously to, on a few islands in Indonesia these Komodo islands and I think the trip we had there it was definitely one of our most memorable because you had everything you had um, incredible landscapes it's all the volcanic kind of islands coming out of the sea and there's pink sand beaches and white sand beaches. Then we got to trek with these Komodo dragons um, who are kind of the biggest dragon you can find up to three meters long. These wow. incredible carnivores that are so dangerous that they can smell blood from five miles away. So as you and this is where you wanted to go. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, I, I'm, that's the place I'm gonna stay away from. <laughs> So you dock at the island and the ranger comes on board the boat and asks anyone, are you bleeding at all? Because they want to check. They don't want any tourists to be picked up. Oh, my God. And you go with a ranger and he just has kind of this pointy stick. And at that point, we were a bit hesitant um, to poke away. They, they seem quite slow and you can go quite close to them and see them. 
And then on the same day, we took another boat to go swimming with manta rays, like these beautiful, massive rays that you can dive in and snorkel with them and they swim above you. They're also like kind of five times your size. And then we got to meet um, some incredible people there who were descendants of these Bajau sea gypsies. And they live on an island. We chartered a, a fishing boat from local fishermen, which we did have second thoughts about when we started getting into a massive storm. <laughs> And water was pouring into this boat and it was just me and my mum and these local fishermen. But we got there in the end. <laughs> and on this island, the, these sea gypsies live. They, they live from the sea and they don't even have fresh water on this island. They go off and bring back water from the mainland. And so as we arrived in this storm, we could see all the children were running around washing their hair in the rain because they don't have showers and running water. So they were taking the opportunity to soap up and wash their hair. And wow. They just were so excited to see us because it's not really on the tourist map, that destination. We, we specially took a boat all the way to go and see them. And little hands pulled us around the island to show us their favorite spots and their pets and their friends. And a few of them spoke English and managed to translate for us. And just to meet people like that and see such a different way of life. You know, the kind of the three-year-old children were diving off into the sea and swimming underwater and with, with no oversight from adults or anything it's such and you feel so bad in a way because I think that's when you see people living with nothing but in a way they're also so happy the children are all playing outside you know they're not kind of on iPads and, <laughs> and depressed and so you really see a way of life and you have to reconsider your initial thoughts when you when you get there like they're very happy with their lives and they don't have stress and the family relationships are much stronger that we really really loved Indonesia I think for that reason it's so fascinating and you know just to focus on the point that you're making like you know as westerners and people who live these like crazy luxurious lifestyles compared to so many around the world even you know what we don't consider luxurious but just having what we consider basic needs a roof over our heads running water you know air conditioning and heat and then you see these people who have so much less. It's like, like you said, your initial reaction is to feel so sorry for them. But then so many of them are so much happier than so many of us. You know, it's fascinating to see and think about and to realize is everything that we have and everything that we're pursuing actually making us happier, you know? So it's exactly that. I think we especially saw that in the Maasai villages in Africa as well. Like every day we, you spend a long time with your guide on safari, kind of upwards of six hours a day, 12 hours a day. So as well as discussing all the animals and the nature, we were fascinated to hear about this lifestyle um, and just to see how much things are changing. And the Maasai really hold on to their culture so strongly. And they are not like in India or in some places in Africa poor. They're actually very wealthy. I mean, they have hundreds and hundreds of cattle and goats. And when we asked them, they said, oh no, each cow is worth kind of $500. So in a sense, they are wealthy, but they choose to live in these mud huts with no water, no electricity, nothing, because that is their culture and they hold on, they still dress in the traditional dress. It's so important to them to keep that. But they said they're so happy. Their children run around free. Actually, our guide said his father had six wives. So um, all the children from the different wives play together <laughs> and they're all wow. one big family. We were introduced to his mother like a few different mothers like this is his mother and this is his mother <laughs> because they all feel that connection and the connection to their culture is although it's I think it's slightly beginning to change now because of the ubiquity of mobile phones that like they all have mobile phones 
So there's no electricity, but there's like a little generator just for their mobile phones. And things are changing now. Like for instance, our guide only has one wife. And he said his mother keeps telling him, why aren't you having another wife? Get another wife. And he said, no, really? I would be, su- I'm so surprised. I would think that, you know, any woman would be happy that that's changing. Like who wants to have to share their husband with another wife? I think maybe it's handy though. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> well, it can help with the cooking and the dishes and the laundry, you know, but. <laughs> they all, the women all build their own huts. So kind of each wife has her own hut and then the man just goes between the huts, I suppose. Um, and then you just see that everyone's related. This is his cousin and that's his cousin. And it's quite fascinating, I think, from a Jewish point of view to see like a nomadic pastoralist people, because it's quite hard for us nowadays, I think, to understand, or for me anyway, to understand the idea of kobonus and what you're bringing a goat. And there you see a people where everything is vested in these animals. A goat and a cow means everything to them. If you're asking them to give up their goat or their cow, I think that's quite an interesting insight for me. You see people going to the well, you see like an ancient life right before your eyes. And I think that when you kind of read Tanakh and you see all these stories, that's, it kind of brings it to life. That this is how these people still live. That is, that is such a fascinating perspective because you're hundred percent right. Like the idea of sacrificing a goat makes absolutely no sense to me. But when you put it like that, it is a sacrifice because that's like, imagine someone told you to sacrifice your car. Yes, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, it's such a huge part of their life that it's a massive sacrifice. Like now that that word sacrifice really means something to me in that sense of what they're giving up. It's incredible. Yeah. And like, you can relate to biblical times when you see that kind of lifestyle. Truth is, you don't even have to go that far back to biblical times, like huge (laughs) parts of the world lived like that until very, very recently, you know? And we, we, I mean, I, I don't, I mean myself, my children, I don't know, you know, I don't want to put this thought onto anyone else or onto you, but like, we are very spoiled. Like we have no clue what it's like to get water from a well. I I don't even have to go that far back. You know, my grandmother didn't have a lot of these amenities when she lived in Europe, they had outhouses, you know, it just blows my mind to think about it. Like if someone took these amenities away from us, we would have no idea how to survive. It's just incredible. You see the children told us in, um, we went to a Samburu village. They're, they're related to the Maasai, so it's quite a similar thing, but they live in Northern Kenya. And they were telling us, they were so excited to show us how they go and wash in the river. And the river is this kind of opaque coffee colored river. So they were showing us how they have to throw in stones first to check there's no crocodiles. And I think like the struggles getting my children like to go in the shower and things. And these children are like jumping into crocodile infested waters and they're very happy. <laughs> Imagine you told your kids, okay, go take a bath, but make sure there's no crocodiles in the tub first. It's crazy. But on the other hand, you know, as much as it's, it's amazing and they're so happy and not spoiled, there is a lot of hardship with that too. You know, in, in the undeveloped world, there is so much infant mortality, women still dying in childbirth, you know, so like there's that sort of weighing out of, yes, they're probably very happy in a lot of ways and and not spoiled. And their kids, like you said, are not on, on their iPhones all day long. But, you know, we do have certain incredible advances when we speak, you know, about medicine and healthcare and stuff that it's uh, unfortunately they don't have, you know, like, like I said, not that long ago, like my grandmother's, my grandmother was one of seven, I think, and two of them died in childhood. So they wound up being five, you know, and that was normal for the time for women to lose children. And it's still that way in a lot of parts of the world. So those are certain hardships, like you said, diseases like are still rampant in those kind of places, you know? 
I wouldn't over glamorize it. I'm not saying I'll be about to swap their life. But I think it's right. just your the react the initial reaction is just to feel so terrible for them. And obviously we still are much more privileged than we have much more, but it's not as black and white, I think. And I think that's what travel really gives you. I was reading a study recently um, that said, obviously, you know, everyone says that travel broadens the mind and that's actually a cliche. And you, when you travel, you learn things like you learn that people look different to you and wear different things. But they said it's, it's a much um, subtler point that when you travel, you learn to see things, the same things in different ways. So if you go to China and you're invited to eat out, which obviously I can't do, and you, you're meant to leave some food because that shows the host that you enjoyed the meal and they gave you enough. Whereas if you're in England and you leave food on your plate, it's rude because it looks like you didn't like it enough to finish it. So the travel really makes you understand in your life nuances. You can People interpret things different ways and one isn't right and one isn't wrong. And when you live in like such an insular community as I do here, it's quite interesting to see more things and broaden your mind. I think it can only add to your perspective. There can't be any disadvantages to doing that. Yeah, I love that thought. And I love that, you know, like you said, when you go and meet other people, other cultures, you know, I've been very, I've been thinking about this idea a lot lately of getting out of our echo chambers, you know, and that that's when it comes to ideas that we talk about, you know, like uh, political ideas or cultural or religious ideas. But this is, you know, in a very real up close and personal way what you're doing like you live in an insular community which is wonderful you know and that's the culture that you choose so that's the pri your primary lifestyle that's the way you're building bringing your children up but getting out of that once in a while or in your case fairly often <laughs> <laughs> and going to see other people and understanding their perspective it's such an amazing positive you know it's such an amazing growth experience and it's so wonderful to me that you're teaching your kids that as well and that they're getting that experience too uh like you said can only enhance their lives to be able to see that it's it, and it, finding that balance is not so easy for a lot of people you know some people choose to to want to keep their their lives and their families' lives more insular and that's fine too but i just love that you're doing this for especially you know for your family it's amazing I think also as a, you said the challenges of being a from woman traveling and you just see that turned on its head because if you travel in Europe you're the person in the dress and the tights and, and the shades and you're hot and everyone looks at you funny if you're on the beach because you're dressed quite oddly if you move into Africa or Asia people look at you oddly because they think you're not even wearing enough <laughs> like I know in in Zanzibar all the women and I've seen in Sri Lanka just go into the sea with all their clothes on and they're dressed you know in long in, in long clothes so it's quite interesting because here we feel kind of we're the odd ones out for dressing like this whereas there Zanzibar is actually a very Muslim very religious country they all wear hijab and they were all just swimming in the water in all their clothes so it makes you reassess your position in the world like obviously you're still different when you're there but you you're not always different for the same reasons I think that's quite an interesting thing to see yeah and that makes me wonder now with the recent rise in anti-semitism um, are you concerned going to these places or, you know, do you try to sort of hide your, your identity or if you take your boys, do they not wear their yarmulkes? Like how, how are you dealing with all of that? So that's really interesting. And I must say, I am slightly nervous. If I go to kind of when I've been in Morocco or an Arab country, I am quite careful. Malaysia, you mentioned you went to Malaysia. That's a very anti-Semitic country. Malaysia, even, even Indonesia, I think, is the most populous Muslim country in the world, but they were quite 
um, welcoming. But I don't think also people on the street, I wouldn't think if you take me out of context, you can't tell that I'm Jewish, really. And if I would be concerned, like in an Arab country, I'd say that it's, it's um, I'm allergic to the food or I've got dietary concerns for other reasons. But it is interesting. I see when I travel with my boys who would always wear a couple that you can see the looks and the things that people know your difference. Whereas I suppose I don't stand out, but they do. And you do feel sometimes more the looks and I would be more nervous then. And I think I wouldn't take them just openly in certain countries. Although, to be honest, at the moment in England, <laughs> I don't know if you're much better off. <laughs> Unfortunately, so true. Or New York City. I know it's a scary, <laughs> it's a scary thought. Like, are you even safer at home? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, that's sobering note. <laughs> <laughs> I really am so fascinated by your experiences. I want to come along on your next trip, but <laughs> you're very welcome. <laughs> thank you. I I really want to thank you so much for sharing your experiences with me, with our audience. I think, you know, your perspectives I are so fascinating. And I think being a from woman in these different cultures that you're going to visit probably really helps shape a lot of what you're seeing and a lot of the lessons that you're coming home with um, and the lessons that you're also imparting on your children. Um, but just in general, as human being to go and see, you know, a lot of the way that other people live probably gives you such an enormous appreciation for everything that you have and, you know, the ability to connect with other people who are so different, but yet then you find out that they're so the same, you know, it's really powerful. Um, you've definitely given me a real wanderlust. <laughs> like now I want to start traveling to Africa. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for coming on. And, and um, I would love to see where you travel next for anyone that wants to see some of your incredible adventures. It's sun, sea, sand, underscore, and a shadow, which is so cute. I love it. So I will link to your page as well so people can check it out. I love your pictures. They especially are full of beaches, which is so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and all of your safari animals and everything. Um, and I would love to share some of them um, to give people an idea of, of what you've been experiencing and we can live vicariously for you. Sure, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ricky. So Thanks. good to meet you. Take care. Bye.